This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with American biologist Professor David George Haskell. David joined me to talk about his new book on the evolution of sound and the beauty of listening in nature. David also discusses how humans are now silencing and smothering many of the natural sounds of the living earth. He shares how human-caused noise is a severe problem for many species, especially those in the oceans. What's more, noise is a human health issue too. David is a professor of biology and environmental studies at Swanee, the University of the South, and his new book is called Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. It is my real delight and absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the program David George Haskell. Now, David did appear on this program right at the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, he was so wonderful and generous to talk about one of his past books, The Songs of Trees, which won the John Burroughs Medal for Distinguished Natural History Writing. And he also has a previous work, including his 2012 book, The Forest Unseen, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. And so on a, a somewhat similar theme today, but definitely um, expanded and very different in many other ways, we're still going to be talking about sound, but in a, in a very different, much broader and expansive way in terms of the time range we're looking at, as well as the diversity of species. So we're going to be discussing David's new book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction, which has just been picked um, and given the great honour of being the editor's choice at the New York Times. Now, David Haskell is a biologist and he works with scientific, literary and contemplative studies of the natural world. He's a professor of biology and environmental studies at Swanee, the University of the South, and he's also a Guggenheim Fellow. So clearly very, very expert and qualified to be discussing this brilliant topic. I welcome David now. Hi there, David, and thank you very much for coming back on. Hello, Amy. It's great to be back with you here uh, talking about sound in a very sonic space here. Yeah. The marvel of radio. I was actually reflecting on that because it's it's a very intimate medium and, and it, it does kind of focus the mind, I think, when you can only have that sensory input of sound. Yeah, and it connects us to something very fundamental about being a human, which is to be in sonic communion and communication with with other people. Of course, sometimes we can see the people we're conversing with, but often, you know, thinking about sitting around a campfire talking or someone's over in the next room, you you can have a chat or hear stories without any need for your eyes to be open, without any need for direct visual communication. So sound is this wonderful connector. Mm. And the great thing about radio is it allows us to, to embrace and fully inhabit that beautiful, beautiful space of sound. I totally agree. One thing that is obvious to me now is that we are visually bombarded. I think our visual senses have kind of taken over in many regards with our smartphones, seeing, you know, billboards and advertising. And if you're living in a city, the hustle and bustle of a city, you know, we don't often have that chance just like you perhaps do in your own work as a, a scientist to actually truly focus and listen and 
strip away all of those other more dominant perceptions and things that the modern world keep pushing us toward? Well, like everyone else, I receive all this bombardment and email is another version of that, all this text, Mm. endless streams of text arriving in the inbox, you know, no matter how hard you work at it, you can't get it all to go away. So in this book, I've tried to step back from that and say, what would it mean to really listen, to listen to the voices of other species? to listen to to the voice of our own species and and our language and our music and to follow some of those sounds back into the stories of how the sonic diversity of the world came to be. How did it get to be so marvelously diverse and different in different parts of the world? And then also to think about its future, what's happening to sonic diversity now, where where might we be going for, for good and for ill as well? And I loved the introduction, which highlights a couple of things that really struck a chord with me. One was the fact that you you not only have the producers of sound, but then you have to listen to sound. So there's that thing of sound and listening, which is, you know, the clear duality, but also this idea of aesthetics, which is something I particularly love, that appreciation of the sound and the kind of aesthetic nature of it. But you also talk about the fact that Listening opens us to the wonders of communication and creativity. Listening also teaches us that we live in an age of diminishment. Aesthetics, the appreciation and consideration of the perceptions of the senses, should therefore be central guides amid the convulsions of change and injustice that we live within. Yet, we are increasingly disconnected from sensory, storied relationship to life's community. This rupture is part of the sensory crisis. We become estranged from both the beauty and brokenness of much of the living world. This destroys the necessary sensory foundation for human ethics. The crises in which we live, then, are not just environmental, of the environs, but perceptual. When the most powerful species on earth ceases to listen to the voices of others, calamity ensues. The vitality of the world depends, in part, on whether we turn our ears back to the living earth. I think everyone can tell why I couldn't pick apart that paragraph because it just summarized such a, a poignant point beautifully. Do you mind picking up from that and your intentions, the message that you're seeking to convey before we jump into the nitty gritty of the detail? Yes. I suppose a way of summarizing that is to say that beauty really matters. We're often taught, particularly in the sciences, that, that beauty is just a superficial thing and it's so subjective that it's basically useless and we should ignore any sense of of beauty in in our lives, Uh, particularly when it comes to really important matters like scientific study and ethical discernment and so on. And I think there's a grain of truth there in that beauty can be deceiving. Uh, And that's part of one reason why I think we need to to study and attend to, to the experience of beauty. But beauty is also amazingly motivating. And here I'm talking by beauty, I mean a sense of things fitting together, of my mind, my emotions, the sensory impressions coming into my body, everything I've learned from my culture, the people and and, and non-human beings around me, all of that gets integrated into this deep sense of, wow, this is a really beautiful experience. And that that might be an experience of human art, but it might also be an experience of of hearing the, the birds wake up at dawn 
or the, the thunder of the cicadas coming from a forest or even a roadside in, in, the, in the summertime. So these experiences of natural beauty, when they are fully appreciated, become guides. Instead of just using our intellects to figure out what's right or wrong in the world, what's, what's broken, what needs, what needs help, we can also use, if we're careful about it, our sense of beauty as, as, a, as a guidepost. And, and sort of the opposite of that is the sense of brokenness or ugliness. And here I don't mean the, the superficial beauty and, and ugliness, but the sense of, say, of, of brokenness in an ecosystem where our human actions have really all been about short-term gain, have totally trashed a place that has been wonderfully beautiful and diverse for thousands and thousands of years, and now it's all gone. That's a sense of ugliness and brokenness that I think, when fully experienced, is again highly motivating for us to do better. And so trying to think of beauty as something that can be uh, appreciated without sweeping it under the rug or dismissing it is, is a big part of what the book's about. And you know, I make some abstract arguments about beauty, but mostly what I try and do is draw readers into my experience of, wow, listen to this rainforest that I visited, or here's what happens when you put an underwater microphone near a coral reef or listen to some whales, or here's the first musical instruments that we know about in, in, in human history. Here's what they sound like. So again and again, coming back to specific examples of what I think are extraordinary acoustic marvels and pondering, well, what, what, what was the lesson here in this experience of beauty? Mm, well, beautifully put. Let's talk about, if we go back in time to a time where you say life was nearly silent, this really was the case for about 3 billion years, that essentially sounds, you say, were confined to the tremors of cell walls and the eddies around simple animals. And here you're referring to bacteria in particular. That was something I had no idea that they made these sounds that you describe. It did make me wonder, do fungi make sounds and viruses make noises? Like if bacteria were making these noises, what else is making noise at a cellular level? Mm -hmm. Could you share that experience of what bacteria were doing and the noises they were making? Yeah, and they're still doing it now because, mm. of course, we're, we're, we're still in the age of bacteria in many ways. You know, yeah. Most of the cells on and in our own human bodies are bacterial cells. And each one, if you, if you listen with a sensitive enough microphone, or even and some of these microphones aren't even picking up sound waves as we traditionally understand them. They're picking up tiny little vibrations that the bacteria makes on the surface that it's sitting on. Uh, and these are extraordinarily small. But it makes sense if you think about what a bacterial cell is doing. It's, a, it's full of all sorts of little protein strands and that are moving the whole time, biochemical reactions, creating this great drama of life inside the cell. And that creates tremors on the outside of the cell that send particular waves out into the, into the surroundings. As far as we know, these aren't communicative sounds. The bacteria aren't singing to one another. Uh, they're not calling out an alarm. I should say, though, that there have been actually relatively few studies of bacteria and the sound that they make. So I think for any sort of Curious microbiologists, this would be a really fun project to, to do some more work on this. 
We, we do know, though, that some bacteria, when you play back sounds to them, they actually grow a little bit faster. So they're sensitive to the sound, they're making the sound, but they're not like birds sitting out on the, on the tree outside the window that are clearly, you know, they're advertising their territory and communicating to one another. But right from the get-go, life was making sound and was sensitive to sound. But it took a very long time for evolution to cotton on and to make good use of that in a communicative way. And I think one of the reasons for that is that making too much sound is dangerous. If you think about the first animals to evolve in the oceans, all of them had pretty decent sense of, of hearing. They could pick up vibrations in the water around them. So if you're a little animal and you make a sound, you're revealing yourself to all the creatures around you, some of whom want to come and eat you. So it wasn't until the evolution of, of flight on land, the first flying creatures were the insects, they could get away from predators very quickly. And so suddenly making a sound wasn't quite so risky. So it, it, it was actually very surprising to me when I was researching this how long it took, hundreds of millions of years of animal evolution. I mean, not even bacteria. Here we're talking about complex multicellular animals with organs and legs and mouths and eyes. But as far as we can tell from the fossil evidence, none of them were making any sounds. And of course, fossils don't make sound, but you can tell because a lot of sound-making devices leave a mark on the fossil of the skeleton. For example, little raised ridges and bumps that make sound on the, on the carapace of crustaceans like crabs or pectoral girdles or other structures in a fish that make little grinding, crackling sounds. All of those leave fossil evidence of sound making. And we don't see that fossil evidence until quite late in animal evolution. So compared to most other forms of communication like chemical communication, visual communication, sound was a latecomer onto the evolutionary stage. But once it appeared, Wow, it really got going, and now we live in a world that is quite literally wrapped in song, both on land and in the water. Yeah, and is the assumption then that the way that those animals were communicating, if they weren't through sound? So for some, for some of those speeches, particularly for, for small creatures like bacteria, and for some of the very small multicellular animals, chemical communication was and is still the primary means of communication. Because when you're very close to another cell, chemicals zip across really, really quickly. And so chemical communication is very rapid. But as you get further and further away from the other creature, chemical diffusion gets really, really slow. And so say, you know, with a human, I mean, yes, you could, if someone's sitting next to you, they've got a lot of perfume on or they've been working out, you, you know, you can smell them, but it's it's a tiny, tiny, weeny little bit of chemical communication, and it's not nearly as rapid as vocal communication, which we can communicate at a very long distance. I mean, these days we can communicate across continents as we're doing right now with the help of some electronic aids, but sound connects creatures across distances that chemicals really just can't do it. Then early on for most animals, there was a tactile form of communication, feelers and antennae and legs, but also for some, the fish and the trilobites and the crustaceans, they had very complex eyes from very early on. So certainly in some habitats, they could see one another and they were probably using some visual communication there. Now, in very muddy habitats, like at the bottom of very active rivers and things, probably visual communication isn't so good because you, you, know, you can't see in front of you because it's so muddy. 
And then when we do eventually get to that point of evolution where there is a conscious use of sound, like a a clear use of sound, what kind of creature eventually makes that leap? The well, quite literally a leap because yeah. it was the uh, the first physical evidence that we have in the fossil record is of a cricket-like creature from 270 million years ago. Uh, probably looked very much like modern cricket would uh, these days. It wasn't. It was a close relative of, of those of those insects. And this was a, an insect living along little riverbanks in some sort of scrubby vegetation on a very dry interior of a continent. And when these insects died, often their wings got caught in the mud of the stream, the creek bank there. And that mud then preserved in exquisite detail all the little veins and the structures on the wing. And on one of these species, there's a little ridge on the wing with a row of little bumps on it. And when the wings rubbed against each other, the bumps would have rubbed and made a rasping sound. And that rasping sound is is very much like how modern crickets or bush crickets these days make their sound. They rub their wings together and a little ridge with bumps on it makes a a rasping sound or in some cases a, a pure tone. This first known singer didn't have quite as evenly spaced, beautifully arranged bumps the way modern crickets and bush crickets do. But, but nonetheless, it was probably a, a pretty good sound maker. Yeah. And is this the same cricket as the one you um, constructed a sound recording for? Yes. I made a, <laughs> some measurements from that ridge and then sort of back calculated from those measurements what the sound might have been and using modern species, as of course, as the comparison because modern species differ in the spacing of their bumps and their sizes and things like that. And so I could make a speculative reconstruction of the sound of that. And to me, it sounds a little bit like a, a, a raspy frog mm. because it's sort of a low frequency sound. Actually, you know, for, for an, a lot of your listeners over a lot of Australia, there are these creatures called mole crickets. There are both native mole crickets and ones that have, that have come in from other continents. And they also make this sort of low frequency sound. So this sound was, was kind of like the mole cricket that you'd hear in in backyards and even street sides, uh, in the street side plantings around Australia. That uh, So it's that kind of not high-pitched, pure tone, the way some crickets uh, sing with now, but more kind of a raspy, rough sound. Yeah. Well, I loved hearing about crickets because we often associate summer with cicadas, for example, and it's something that's really... Australian to us is the the sound of cicadas. I know that probably is not at all the sound of these crickets based on what I, I heard on your website, but I love the part of your book where you were associating sound with nostalgia as well and just how special that is for people based on their location and where they live and their age and that kind of thing. Yes, we all have, we, whether we're trying to do it or not, we all pick up a little acoustic memory of our childhood of where we grew up. And certainly when I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about this. But to this day, when I hear a European blackbird singing, uh, it carries me right back to my childhood. And I grew up in, in, in Paris. And, and early on, we lived in, a, in an apartment complex. And the blackbirds would sing in the back of that apartment in this very echoey kind of courtyard area. And I hear that now, and it's just so evocative. It carries me straight back to my childhood. 
But every place in the world has its own acoustic signature. Of course, different parts of Australia, Australia do. Australia sounds really different from North America, from Western Europe, from Africa. And so wherever we live, we pick up this often affinity for the sounds of home. Mm. And even years later, decades later, we may not have thought about it. We may not have heard those sounds. But if we hear them, wow, we're transported right back. It's a little bit like smell. You know, if you smell the smell of, say, your grandparents cooking or the smell of your first schoolroom, you know, maybe sort of antiseptic on the floor and pencils and those sort of schoolroom smells, it can carry you right back. The same thing with, with sounds. And people who move around continents, for example, immigrants into Australia from the UK often think, oh, the birds are just terrible. I can't stand these birds. They're too loud and raucous and so on. You know, it's sort of a typical limey reaction. But then also when Australians move, and there have been psychological and anthropological studies of these movements, when Australians move, say, to Western Europe, they miss the sounds of home because the, the sounds of the birds in Western Europe are beautiful in their own way, but they're not, they're not home. Mm. And so for many people, even if they're not nature enthusiasts, will sometimes put on a CD or go to YouTube or some other place and listen to the sounds of where they grew up just for, for a trip down memory lane that actually I think is, is more significant than just sort of idle nostalgia is it actually is an indication that our body carries always an internal compass. And that compass is oriented by our senses, smell, sight, sound. And it's a way of orienting us back to home and helping us understand the landscape. So even in this modern world where we're, we're so often disconnected from attention to other species and to the places where we live, we still carry with us this what we've been doing for millions of years as primates is listening to the world and trying to figure out where we belong and where's home and where is safe. And we can, and I think it's marvelous that we carry that within us, even in, in the middle of a modern city. Oh, it's beautiful. It did remind me when I went to Yorkshire, uh, I was just struck by like the robins and these tiny little birds that had these very kind of neat, orderly chirping songs <laughs> that would repeat. And they seemed so, I don't know, dainty <laughs> compared to the Australian birds that kind of squawk at you and like sometimes seem like they're yelling, but in a beautiful way. Like I love the squawking, don't get me wrong, but it just was such a, a shock to me. Yeah, very, very, very different. And of course, well, Yorkshire is, is fairly far north in the in the in the northern hemisphere, of course, as is most of the UK. And so the, the diversity of bird sounds is lower mm. for a start compared to most of Australia. But also the, the the evolutionary history of most songbirds in Western Europe are a tiny little fraction of the great songbird diversity that's present in Australia. So Australia was the the crucible, the birthing ground of, of songbirds. And then a small number of them, some of them moved out to Asia and then into the Americas and Western Europe. And so the soundscape of Europe is in a way a subset of the much larger diversity that you can hear in Australia and also in, in Asia that also is tuned into the local ecology because most birds in Western Europe are eating little insects, uh, maybe some fruit in the wintertime, whereas in Australia, there are 
incredible numbers of nectar-producing trees mm. that create extraordinary levels of competition. And, and that's where some of that raucousness comes from. And uh, Australian author Tim Lowe has written a marvelous book where song began discussing the, the ecology of Australia and how it produced this, this marvelous diversity of, of birdsong that people the rest of the world over get to enjoy because, of course, some, some of those birds then left Australia. The same is true for parrots that originally evolved in Australia and, of course, still are, are very, very diverse. Yeah. I was thinking um, the other day we have all these flocks of corellas, which are really loud. Like, mm-hmm. But the other day they were just flocked in this very low-lying tree that I thought was going to break and some of them were just lying upside down with their feet hanging from the branches, squawking this loud squawk. <laughs> yeah, it was hilarious. That's great. You know, the thing in Australia is you've got those sort of loud, raucous ones, but you've also got all sorts of other, uh, you know, like the willy wagtails and others that have sort of different textures and different timbers in, in their songs. And so, yeah, when there's a flock of lorikeets coming over or in your garden that you hear mostly those, or the butcher birds and the magpies that are just unrivaled anywhere in the world in the beauty of their their fluting songs and the creativity of the sounds that they make. So really a, a marvelous range of different acoustic experiences. Yeah. Well, now that you're in Australia, I thought we'd just stick with it for a moment and we can go back to the other parts. And you mentioned magpies, and I kind of wanted to dwell on magpies a little bit. Because so many people in Australia, I think you have your own magpie family, you know, ones that are just in your location, you get to know them. And I think what I discovered in lockdown, and I wonder if this happened with you, maybe with other birds, you know, not in Australia, is that you kind of get to know their song and you try and understand what different sounds mean different things based on their behavior you know so I've kind of figured out what's the sound when the daddy magpies yelling out to the mummy magpie come over Mm -hmm. and I just felt like I'm hoping I'm getting accurate in picking up you know the sounds and trying to guess what they mean but I wonder whether you ever do that yourself and and try and interpret what birds are doing and I know it's kind of hard as a human because we're not sharing a language but I don't know do you ever feel tempted to do that? I love the way you, you approach this because it's, it's, it's so inquisitive, but also humble. And I think that's exactly the right spirit is that we live surrounded by all these different voices. And, and it is a, a really fun exercise to try and tune in to what's happening with bird sounds. And, and the, the meanings that you talked about with the, the magpies, magpies are especially good at this because they have such diverse vocal repertoires that our human ears can pick up with. Some birds say a lot of North American sparrows. They make very subtly different sounds. So it's actually quite hard to hear the differences. If you record them and put them on the computer screen and you know, plot them out as a, as a graph, you can see the differences. But it's a lot harder to get into that. So yes, I do try and tune into the meanings of the sounds around me. I mean, just today, actually, I found a nest of eastern towhees that are these quite loud, pugnacious, large sparrows that, that breed around here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, by realizing, well, the male is making this funny sound that I haven't heard before. Why is he hanging around that bush so much? And so that got my attention. And then I watched. And then sure enough, they, they started coming in with food and they've got a nest in, in that bush. So by tuning into the sounds, you pick up both the everyday activities, but also when something is different, you say, oh, well, maybe they're nesting or maybe there's a new sort of predator like a snake or some kind of hawk that has arrived that they're signaling about. The other thing that 
I think is great about listening to, to, I mean, birds and insects and frogs and all the other animals that make sounds around us is that it gives us a more subtle sense of the changing of the seasons. We often think about, well, the spring and summer and autumn and stuff, you know, just very crude divisions. Whereas actually the, the cycles of the seasons, which are determined by the weather, but also when plants are flowering and fruiting and when different insects are hatching and things like that, there are hundreds of different seasons. You know, every week there are m- multiple different things happening out in an ecosystem. And by listening to the animals, you can sort of tune into when the migrant birds are arriving or when this particular tree finally starts flowering or when, when it produces good fruit. In my back garden here, I've got a a black cherry tree that just this week started fruiting and suddenly the American robins are all over it, making these these quite loud calls. And so by tuning into the bird sounds, I realized that we're into the first part of the fruiting season for that particular tree. It's the first one that's come into fruit in months and months. And so now I'm sort of aware of that. Of course, I'm not dependent on that tree for my own survival, but it's enriching for me to be tuned into the local ecology in that way. Mm. Um, you know, it's 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 a lot more fun than watching the you know the soap operas on <laughs> television and so on because because it, it's real, and and these dramas are very real and sometimes they're heartrending. You know, when a snake comes and eats the baby birds you've been watching in the nest for a week or two, it's and that's. That's the nature of life, to face these cycles of birth and joy and beauty, but also death and loss. Uh, So listening ties us into those things, uh, those processes in in a very real way. It's analogous, I think, to gardening for food in some ways, is that planting seeds and eating and tending a garden and and eating the food that we gain from a garden again, also ties us into those cycles of productivity and life and death and, and, and the things that all our ancestors and many people still today are doing, which is trying to make a living from the land itself without the intermediaries of supermarkets and, and so on. And, and there's something very instructive, but also joyful and meaningful about those, those sorts of practices. I wanted to pick up on gender bias in birdsong while we're talking about birds just for a moment because, yeah, it's something that had come up for me in the past when talking about Australian birds was this bias that really in many species females don't sing or their song is not as complex or, I guess, useful, you know, that it doesn't have as much of a purpose. And so, you know, there's this assumption or view that, you know, the male bird, because they have to attract a female, has to have a more beautiful or attractive song or a more complex song. Right. And I wonder, you know, you you address that point in this book. And I wondered if you could do that for us here to kind of tell everyone, you know, what is the truth? <laughs> well, there are 10,000 truths when it comes to birds, because every species has its own ecology and context. And indeed, there are some species particularly species, it turns out, in West, the northern parts of Western Europe and in some parts of North America, where the male does almost all of the singing. Uh, the female tends the eggs. The male maybe brings a little bit of food. Uh, but but the, very, the gender roles are highly differentiated, and song is almost exclusive from the male. But there are other species where both males and females sing, and that tends to be more true in the tropics. Uh, tends to be true away from Western Europe and and North America. 
And so the ecology of the species determines the particular roles of males and females. And, and, and also, of you know, I'm talking about males and females, but there are some species where there are multiple genders. So two different types of male, two different types of female with different sorts of songs and behaviors. So if we're looking to birds, we can definitively say that not all species exist in an absolute binary between male and female. There are some species like the uh, white-throated sparrows in North America, where there are multiple different kinds of males and, and females. Oh, it just reminded me of the frog example you gave when you were talking about intersex frogs and how obviously a, a, that was not as simple as male-female either. Yes, a lot of frog bodies, even though from the outside they might appear just male or female, and maybe one is singing, so we'd assume it's a male. But when you look inside the frog, some of those males have also got ovaries, some of the females who have ovaries also have testes. And so, so there's a, a lack of binary distinction there in some frog species. But again, it depends on the species. And this mm. is the part of the problem with looking to, say, birds or frogs to say, well, what's natural and what should be natural for humans? Well, we're our own species. And so you can pick an example from the rest of the animal kingdom to support almost any form of gender identity and sexuality. And to me, that is instructive. It's like, well, there's a lot of diversity in the world. But what we can't do is get our morals from, from the frogs and the birds. Uh, we have to figure out what's right or wrong, what works for us. Um, you know, and I happen to think that we should let people make their own decisions rather than have the government make the decision for you, forbidding certain kinds of sexuality. Mm. And so on. But about the, the songs of birds, though, most Western scientific ornithology was at first done in northern parts of Western Europe and in some parts of North America, where most of the birds, it's actually the males that do most of the singing and not so much the females. So they embedded into the structure of scientific thought was this idea, and of course Darwin spent most of his life in the countryside in England, this idea that males do the singing, the females don't. And that was then projected onto the rest of the world in a sort of, I mean, a very kind of colonial way. It's like, well, this is how it works in merry old England. So that's obviously how it's going to work everywhere else in the world. That was the idea. And it turns out, well, that's just not the case. In Australia, also in the American tropics, in the, in the tropics in Africa, all sorts of different ways where males and females are singing. Also, in Western Europe and in parts of North America, people have now realized that the females that many of these Victorian naturalists had assumed were entirely silent, are actually making some song. It's often not as elaborate as a male song, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a, a function. It's just the function is different. It fits in with their particular need for advertisement or territoriality or whatever it is that they're interacting with males and, and females within their species. So yes, there's been a lot of work, both studying female song in species where assumptions had been made, incorrect assumptions had been made, and also a realization that the particular geographic origin of especially English-speaking science that came from, essentially from Scotland and England in the, in the 18th, 19th century, also partly from Paris and parts of Germany, that just doesn't apply to the rest of the world. And that's very refreshing because it means, oh, if we're in, a, in this habitat somewhere else, we need to listen with fresh ears and not just transplant a way of thinking from somewhere else into this, into this new environment. And yeah. that's, of course, 
That is also true for other aspects of life, like respecting indigenous cultures, understanding how agriculture should work in different continents. For example, when agriculture that might work in England is transplanted into, say, the tropics of the Americas, Central America and South America, it's terrible because you result in massive levels of soil erosion, entirely different ecology in, in tropical regions. And so we need to listen to the soils and the plants of each region in order to understand how to live well in a place. Yeah. And one of the things that you raise in this book throughout the the book actually is talking about the limitations of human hearing in terms of what we can hear and the frequencies of that hearing. And um, you make a demonstration of, you know, human hearing and what we can hear, say, if you're standing at a a docker up here and you know you can't really hear much beyond the water lapping whatever the seaweed might be doing um, interfering with the water sounds so you show an example where you kind of put a sound measuring device underneath the water to show us what's actually happening there sound wise and just how much we kind of miss because we're not able to even pick it up and presumably if we're snorkeling we still can't really hear what's going on as the sound device shows Could you expand a bit on that and what you discovered about water and underwater species and, you know, the sounds that they're making that we probably can't access? Yes. Our ears are tuned to the air, of course. That's how we communicate. And so when we're standing on the edge of the sea or river, the sound that is under the water, the sounds of whales and fish and crustaceans and insects, all the things that are happening under the water come up through the water and then they actually bounce off the upper surface of the water and go back down. So they never get out of the water at all, unless they're really, really loud. If there's an underwater explosion, then there's a lot of that energy will come out. But even, even then, most of it bounces back down. And then when we go snorkeling, our ears are still filled with air. And the middle ear, where the little bones are converting pressure waves from the eardrum into the inner ear, where we turn it into nerve signals, that is all adapted to air as well. So we, if we're next to a very loud whale, then yeah, we can hear the whale when we're snorkeling. But our ears are out of place even when we submerge our heads into the water. <laughs> so we can use technology to get our ears and our imaginations under the water using underwater microphones. Hydrophones, as they're called, are little capsules that turn the vibrations in water into electronic signals that feed right into a tape recorder or a computer. And so we can then listen to the sounds under the water. And people have, people have done this all around the world now and found that what we formerly thought were silent oceans are in fact full of sound. The dolphins and the whales are, of course, the most famous example, but also Little shrimp and crabs and thousands of species of fish make sounds during the breeding season and little in freshwater, little insects are making sounds. And then there's the physical sounds from the mud bubbling and the, the air bubbles floating on the top of the water and waves moving back and forth. So it's an incredibly rich soundscape. Uh, and in the water in particular, of course, light drops off very quickly as you get deeper into the water. And if you're in the waters near the mouth of a river, often it's very silty in the water, so you can't see. So for most creatures living in those waters, sound is the primary way of connecting. So we're eavesdropping on a world that is 
incredibly rich sonically. And th this was an experience that just blew me away. The first time I did, that, did this, it was on the Southeast coast here in the United States, rich tidal marshes that, you know, from the top just look like a bunch of mud and some tidal marsh grass, not very diverse, but wow, you put a hydrophone in and you hear all these different sounds. And I'd encourage listeners actually to, to listen to some of these sounds actually in Australia. So Leah Barkley is a, is an artist, a sound recordist, a researcher who's made sound recordings under the water all over Australia, really extraordinarily creative work that draws our imagination into the rich and varied soundscapes. Uh, and, of course, and people do this in other parts of the world, but she is a world leader in, in doing this work and also happens to be living in a place where, you know, on a continent where the sounds are just amazing. Uh, but, you know, from, of course, the reefs, but also the rivers and the inland waters are very, very uh, rich and, and fascinating to listen to. Oh, wow. I'm definitely looking that up. Leah Barclay. You talk about a bit later in the book, because we're on the subject of water and oceans, etc., about how human sound and mechanical sound can interfere with creatures in the ocean. And I think it's something that we often would just not think of in a very ignorant way with that colonial mindset to just, oh, well, we'll just chuck a whole lot of ships in here and we'll dredge some things with a big machine. And you know, could you tell us what the impacts are of human activity on some of these animals, especially the ones that you talk about with the ocean, but then also perhaps the birds, because you also raise that in the city context as being another big issue. Noise is, is a very severe problem for some species. In the oceans, I think the problem is the worst of all in the oceans, particularly near busy shipping lanes or in areas of active oil exploration, because shipping noise pumps a huge amount of noise down from, the, from of course, the propeller going around and around and the engines and noise coming out of the hull from these enormous ships that are carrying raw materials, of course, coal and ore and oil and liquefied natural gas, but also, I look around in my house and my laptop came from, from Asia and I've got some bottles of olive oil from Western Europe. All of that came here on a big ship. And so even though I don't see whales very often, I live inland, they hear me every day because a lot of the stuff I'm using is pumping sound into their environment. Oil exploration does the same with, with using these seismic air gun arrays go for months and months and, and fill the ocean with incredible amount of sound. And as I mentioned, for a lot of ocean creatures, sound is the primary method of communication. So we're basically blocking or degrading that communication channel. And for some species, this, this is extremely stressful. It, it stops them from breeding. It stops them from feeding or look after their young, right? All sorts of effects have been documented hundreds and hundreds of times by scientists studying this from crustaceans to fish to marine mammals. So ocean noise is, is a very severe problem. It's a problem, though, that can be addressed through re-engineered ships, through careful routing of ships and slowing them down in, in the most critically important areas, because when you slow down, even by 10%, uh, you reduce the amount of noise by an incredible amount. And most of the noise in the oceans actually comes from a small number of the very old kind of decrepit ships that are still going. If we could quiet down that noisy minority, we'd make a huge, 
huge impact. If we can wean ourselves off oil, there will be less need for seismic surveys. And also there are other ways of finding oil under the ocean that don't require making as much sound. So it, it, I think it's a real crisis. It's, it's a real, it's a tragedy, but it's also one that is solvable a little more easily than some of the other big crises that we're facing, like carbon dioxide and methane in, in the atmosphere. The same sort of problem occurs in some cities and industrial areas where there's so much noise being created by our engines and cars and planes and factories that some species can't hear one another, some frogs and birds can't hear the breeding song. And so their societies are also degraded by that. A few species adapt. Some species in cities, birds especially, will sing louder and higher to sort of shout through the noise and, and with a higher pitched song. So they're vaulting over the mire of engine noise, which tends to be very low frequency. So there are ways of adapting and some species have done that with some success. But a lot of species can't do that or have not yet been able to. And so our noise is blocking the possibility. So even though there might be food, there might be nesting habitats, if the sensory environment is degraded, then that makes things tough for a lot of for a lot of these species. And that's true for us as well. If we live in a very noisy place, noise that we can't control, even if we're used to it, that noise actually inflames us from inside. It actually causes bodily inflammation. It increases blood pressure. Even when we're sleeping, you know, and a plane goes over, there's an effect on our physiology that then translates into disease. In, in Western Europe, where they've studied this quite carefully, they estimate that there's at least 40,000 new cases of heart disease caused by urban noise every year. Wow. And then hundreds of thousands of, 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 of less severe disease uh, outcomes from the noise. So noise isn't just an inconvenience or an annoyance. It's actually something is a real public health problem, the same way that air pollution is. And again, with urban noise, it's, I mean, it's a challenge, but it's one that can be solved through better engineering of cars and vehicles to make them quieter, but also through urban planning to make sure that we're not putting the busy highways right next to schools or right the way through people's neighborhoods and so on, through intelligent design of cities and of transportation networks, we can build a future that is less noisy and therefore better both for humans and also for other species as well. Yeah. And I'm certainly aware that light pollution is another problem yes, um, as well. Yeah. And let's just, if you don't mind, finish on humans. You have a lovely chapter and, and a whole section on human music and human sound. And obviously, there's a whole range of wonderful sounds. You know, humans can sing um, and you speculate about when humans started to make sound um, and whether it was either vocalizations or song. And we don't really know if it was speech or song that came first. And I'm kind of intrigued by that question. Um, but there's also, you know, instruments as well. And you talk about going to southern Germany and looking at some gorgeous 40,000-year-old flutes, I guess you could call them. So I wonder, could you tell us about what you discovered on your trip to southern Germany and what kind of, I guess, inspired you so much that you even tried to make your own as well? Yeah, what I discovered was 
that our music, our instrumental music, really belongs in the ecology and the story of this world. And I had until, even though I'm a biologist, I've thought, well, human music is somehow kind of really different. And when I'm listening to a concert, say, you know, rock concert or classical concert, I'm in a different realm here than when I'm listening in the forest. Turns out that's not at all the case. You think about when a, a band takes the stage, their instruments are made from wood and metal ore and the violins abode with horsehair and tree resin. So we're hearing the second song of a forest. We're hearing human creativity working with the materiality of, the, of other species. And so listening to music is a much more rich experience now because for me, because I'm imagining all those ecological connections that are present, even say in the plastic keyboard of say someone playing electronic jazz. Well, where did that plastic come from? It was made out of oil. Where does oil come from? It's just ancient algae that got compressed and we turned it into oil. And so the plastic keyboard is actually ancient algal bodies that have captured some sunlight within them. And this is true, right? It really came home to me in these caves in southern Germany where the, these old, old 40,000-year-old flutes were excavated. The flutes were made from the wing bones of big birds. They were carved out of the ivory from mammoth tusks. And so people were using the bodies of other creatures to make music, to make art. And, and I think that's a, it's a sort of interesting perspective and circling back to the question of beauty is that human beauty and human art is about relationship between people. Like an artist, of course, is communicating with, with other people, a musical artist and a, or a visual artist. But also all artists are also in relationship with the earth, whether or not they want to think about that or acknowledge that. But there is a deep earth connection into the, to the rest of the living world. And in this age where we often feel alienated from the rest of the natural world, I think rethinking music and visual art as, as an ecological experience can be, a, can be a wonderful thing. It really helps us feel like we belong and that we're connected. Absolutely. Well, I might play the flute sound from your website after this chat for people to get an idea of what we're talking about. Excellent. Great. But I do want to say, yeah, a big thank you to you, David. And I guess to give you the final word, you know, you say that to listen is a political and moral act, and perhaps they've got a sense now of why that's the case. But I just wonder, do you have a, a call to action or something that you hope people might do once they read your book? What would you wish for people to do more when it comes to sound? My primary wish is for people to go out into their own home environments and to listen and enjoy the way you described in enjoying the magpies and the, and the sounds around you during during lockdown, we can do that in the everyday, both to non-human sounds, but also listen more carefully to the voices of other people, voices of, of human music, and then see where that careful, attentive listening takes you. Because the magic thing about listening is it seems so simple. And in fact, it is very simple. You don't need any extra equipment. You just sit down and pay attention to your ears for just a few minutes. It ignites curiosity. It teaches us what's beautiful and broken in the world, and then leads on to other things. And for some people, that might be political action. I hope for some people it will be you know, voting and doing all those things and helping it steer us all in the right direction. But it, for others, it might be sharing that with some young people so that 
so that they'll have some acoustic memories to take on with them in, into life. Uh, and for others, it, it might be some form of artistic expression. So I won't presume to say where the listening will lead people, but my invitation is to take this practice of just a few minutes a day, step outside and just listen without judgment, without any sort of expectation, just be open to the pure diversity and physicality of the sonic world, whatever it is, whether it's human or non-human sounds. Couldn't agree more. I certainly got so much from doing that and I still do it. Actually, it's a habit I created in lockdown. So I'm glad I'm still doing what I Excellent. What I started. It's easy to get stuck into you know modern life and forget that there's a lot going on around you. Uh, thank you so much, David, for reminding us all about it and taking us on a very long deep time journey and uh, also hopefully creating a closer relationship between us and sound and a big congratulations to you on this book. It's just brilliant. Well, thank you, Amy. It's such a delight to be with you and I wish you and all your listeners many marvelous sounds in the coming weeks. Oh, thank you. Please make sure you pick up David George Haskell's book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolutions, Creativity and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction, which is out through Black Ink here in Australia. And that was my pre-recorded conversation with David George Haskell. Now, I did promise that I would play that 15-second flute song. This is a really kind of eerie song. You can actually check out a whole range of sounds that David talks about in his book because he's put them up on his website at dghaskell.com. So I'm going to play this one. It is from the 40,000-year-old mammoth ivory flute it was played by flautist anna friedrich potengowski and uh, yeah it's a paleolithic instrument and um, really really interesting so we'll play that There you go. So that is what it sounds like from a mammoth ivory flute, hand-carved, and it was unearthed from caves in southern Germany. And uh, there's a whole section on that flute in David's book. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.